Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. A major crisis is unfolding in the Western Hemisphere. Thousands, if not millions, of Venezuelans have left their homes in the face of an economic and political crisis that has gripped their country. To talk about this crisis, its origins and solutions, is Danny Bahar, a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings. He has recently returned from a trip to South America and will share some firsthand insights about what he saw. Also on today's show, Molly Reynolds with another edition of What's Happening in Congress. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now on with the interview. Danny, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. Is what's happening in Venezuela actually a, quote, refugee crisis? I think it is because the status of refugees is something that is given on a person-by-person cases. The original definition of a refugee was made in 1951 after the Second World War, and it was kind of clear that refugees come out of places where there's armed conflict. For example, Syria today, or the Balkans, the Yugoslavians in the 1990, or refugees from World War II. But this case is a little bit of a gray area, because even though there's not a war happening in Venezuela, if you look at all the humanitarian indicators, they are at the same level, or even wars and all the other humanitarian crises that you see because of war in the world. But there's something else that is interesting, and I think that the governments of countries are aware of it, but the discussion is not so much out there, which is that Latin America stands out by having its own definition of a refugee, which is a very broad definition as compared to the 1951 one. And it's based on a document that was signed in 1984 called the Declaration of Cartagena, and it includes Mexico, Panama, Colombia, not Brazil. And there they define a refugee as having the same elements of the 1951 convention, the 1967 protocol, but they also include among refugees persons, and I'm reading, who have fled their country because their lives, safety, or freedom have been threatened by generalized violence, foreign aggression, internal conflict, massive violation of human rights, or other circumstances which have seriously disturbed public order. So if you spend five minutes in Venezuela, you will see that this is happening across the border. So, of course, not everybody who's living in Venezuela is a refugee because a lot of the people are not being individually threatened. Maybe some of them, they're protected or they have some resources. But a lot of the people, a huge percentage, it could be more than half, 60 percent, we don't know, they could easily fall into this classification, which will mean that the international community should step up to help them. That's the question I wanted to follow up with, is why does it matter whether the terminology refugee is used in this situation or not? It's a good question. We actually hosted an event here a few weeks ago on this topic, and we had people from the United Nations High Commission for Refugee and people from the Department of State in the U.S., and their claim was it doesn't really matter because they're looking to deal with people in terms of their needs and not in terms of their status. But when you look at the macro and when you think that there's the need for financial resources to deal with this situation, I think that you can go a long way if you declare this as a refugee crisis, because that means that the UN will be encouraged, of course, to step up and provide more resources and the international community as a whole. If you don't want to acknowledge this as a crisis, so then resources are going to be much harder to flow. Now, a lot of the refugees are going into Colombia, which is Venezuela's next-door neighbor to the West, as I remember my geography. So does the use or not of the term refugee change how the nation of Colombia deals with the Venezuelans that are crossing its border? 
Well, again, all this is a gray area, but there are some people who have asked for refugee status and have received it in Colombia, but it's a small minority. There is a protocol that everybody in every country can request for a refugee or asylum status. But the question is if there's enough evidence based on this definition that I read a few minutes ago on making it easier and give like a fast track to everybody who's going to ask for a refugee status. And that's not happening right now in Colombia. People can individually go and ask for a refugee status. The process could take a year or more, but there's no fast tracking where everybody who's coming in can ask for a status. And you have a lot of people that are coming in with their passports, but you also have a lot of people who don't even have the money to have a passport and they are crossing the border. And the Colombian government, I think, generally are making a big effort in trying to find a way to deal with all these people in a different status that they have, with passports, without them, or so on. But there's not yet a generalized program to provide a legal status to everybody in the same way that a lot of developed countries have. For instance, the U.S. have the temporary protected status. For instance, I know the Haitians during the earthquake, a lot of them came with a temporary protected status to the U.S. or the way that Germany provided to Yugoslavian refugees or to the Syrians and so on. I do want to dive into some of the underlying political and economic causes of what's happening in Venezuela in a few minutes. But first, I want to hear about your trip that you've recently been on. You were at the border between Colombia and Venezuela. You visited various places. Can you tell me about where you went and the kinds of things that you saw during your trip there? Yeah. Well, it was a trip that was very emotional because I'm a researcher. I spend most of the time in front of a computer looking at data. But, you know, going to the field and seeing how things are firsthand with your own eyes, it really gives you a lot of perspective. And I didn't realize before going there how deep is this crisis. I was at the border the beginning of April. I spent about two days and a half in Cúcuta, which is one of the cities bordering Venezuela that is massively transited by people crossing the border. You know, I stood there for about two hours every day while I was there, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and every single person I interacted with, they had a horrible story behind them, like people who were crossing the border just to sell some fruits, to be able to find medicine, a guy who was selling fruit to buy medicine for his brother who was suffering from epilepsy and they couldn't find the medicine in Venezuela. We found this whole couple who they were crossing the border to see if they can find insulin because the husband is diabetic and he doesn't have access to insulin in Venezuela. I found this woman who she has retired and with her pension she can either buy two dozens of eggs a month or one kilogram of chicken. That's it. And that's assuming that she doesn't have any other expenditures. She showed me her clothes, how she has lost weight in the past year. It was terrifying, and it's not a normal border. People can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it's normal when you cross a border. That one of the first things you see are tents from the Red Cross, providing basic first aid to the people crossing. There were mothers bringing their small babies to get vaccines because there are no vaccines in Venezuela. There were people that were just crossing to work. For instance, this woman who has a doctoral degree in education, and she was cleaning the floor of a bus station. And she told me, I'm fortunate that I can go and work and I can provide to my family because the job I have in Venezuela just doesn't give me enough to support myself or my family. Just for you have an idea, like the minimum wage in Venezuela today, which is what most of the Venezuelans earn, is about $2. And it could be much less because the local currency is depreciating by the minute, as we speak. It's a really sad situation, and you understand really that these people have been deprived from their liberties, deprived from basic human rights. So that's why a lot of these people actually could be recognized, should be recognized as refugees. 
Now, you took a lot of photos, and these photos are available to our listeners on the Brookings website in a photo essay. And they're really compelling. And one of them that really stood out to me is a woman walking across holding onto a mattress. Can you tell me about what's going on with the woman who's carrying her mattress with her across the border? Well, Fred, you see, you have to think how desperate people should be when they're crossing a border without having the certainty on when they're going to sleep that night. We saw a lot of people crossing, and I didn't talk to the woman in particular, but I talked to some others that were bringing a mattress because they knew that they weren't going to need to sleep in the street that night. They were crossing the border into Colombia, trying without any knowledge of what are they going to eat, where are they going to work, where are they going to sleep. And you really have to be desperate to do that. And you see in Cúcuta, in that city, and I guess in other cities in Colombia, that a lot of Venezuelans who are in the streets, who are trying to make a living, you see some efforts from the Colombian government, particularly when it comes to health. The public hospitals in Colombia have provided free services to many Venezuelans who have come, a lot of them undernourished with children with problems of nutrition and also parents. They've made a big effort to integrate these kids into the education system. There's a lot of charities, particularly in the border, that are doing an amazingly good job. I want to particularly mention the Catholic Church. They've been putting out places where people can eat. Some of the numbers they gave us is that they've served 400,000 hot meals in eight months. I went to some of these places, public dining halls, where people were were eating. And, you know, it's really sad. It's really sad to be there because I don't think nobody wants just to go somewhere just to eat a free meal. I think people that are there are really desperate. Some of them are just crossing to eat and then going back. And that's their only meal they have in the day. So that case you're mentioning or many other places show how desperate the people are by trying to leave. One of the people you met is a woman named Yusmari Gomez, and you have this video of her. And I'd like to play a small portion of the video. Now, I know it's in Spanish, and so many of our listeners may not understand what she's saying. I don't understand what she's saying. But I can see in her intensity in the video her emotion, her depth of feeling about the situation. And I would like to play some of this and then ask you to sort of explain for our listeners what her story is and some of what she's saying. Yusmarie was one of the first persons we met. We met her as she was crossing back into Venezuela with her daughter. She was crossing with a lot of bags. And she was very courageous, not only to tell us her story, but she actually was fine with us recording her story on a video. And she spent a few months in Cúcuta working because she can't find a job in Venezuela that will give her enough money to support herself and her daughter and her family. So she spent a few months there. She saved some money. She was going back to her daughter because it was very hard for her to work as a single mother and have their daughter with her, so she was going back to bring her daughter back to the grandmother with some bags of food because they don't have food or medicines there. And she was going to do that, and she would then was going to come back eventually to Colombia to keep making a living. So you see a lot of that. You see mainly two profiles of people who are crossing. By the way, there are about, according to official estimates, there are about 35,000 people crossing that bridge. That's one of the crossing points from Venezuela to Colombia every day. And the official numbers say that something between around 2,000 to 3,000 people actually stay. 
So these are the two profiles that you have. A lot of people cross for the day or for the week to work, to buy groceries, to buy medicines, or all of them combined. And some people are just fleeing and leaving for good, leaving everything behind. A lot of them will stay in Cúcuta. A lot of them will travel to other places in Colombia. And something that it was striking also to see is that we saw there are like 12 bus companies there that are having, just as you cross the border, they will sell you tickets to travel not to Bogota or to Medellín or cities in Colombia, but to Ecuador, to Argentina, to Chile. So people will jump into a bus. They will just cross the border with whatever they have. They will probably spend their lifetime savings because these bus tickets were around $200 maybe. And they will jump into a bus with another 40 people and spend four or six or eight days on a bus to get to a place that they don't know, they've never been to, to try to find their new life there. So it's really sad, her story and that of many others I saw. And so those people are making a one-way trip to these other countries. These people are making a one-way trip in complete uncertainty without having any type of capital that they could rely on for the first few weeks. You talked about some of the efforts the Colombian government is making to help the Venezuelans that are crossing the border, including putting the children in school, providing some medical care. Are those services, medicine, education, just not available to Venezuelans anymore? It depends on the person, but widespread. There is a very large scarcity of goods and medicines, and the reason is the huge mismanagement that this government has put in place. So to put it simply, the country doesn't have enough income to feed all of their people. There's not enough money coming into the country. The main business of the country is oil. It's an oil-exporting country. Both the price of oil collapsed, but also the production of oil collapsed, which is a reflection of their poor management. And there's simply not enough income to feed the 2,500 calories that every Venezuelan needs to eat every day. So that means that you go to supermarkets and you don't find what you're looking for. You go to pharmacies and you don't find what you're looking for. And it's really what you see in many other places where there are humanitarian crises. This is probably the worst humanitarian crisis the hemisphere has seen. You wrote in one of your recent posts that's on the Brookings website that Venezuelans have lost an average of something like 20 pounds because of food scarcity, malnutrition. 20 pounds is a lot. Yeah, 75% of Venezuelans. This was a survey that came out of a number of universities in Venezuela. One of the problems we have is that the government doesn't really publish data. So we rely on surveys. So this is a survey that came out of some of the most prestigious universities in the country which are not saying only that number that is really scary. Like 75% of Venezuelans have lost up to 20 pounds on average because of everything that we just talked. But they're saying the levels of poverty came up are now above 85%. Extreme poverty is 65%. Infant mortality is 2 out of 100 kids. So 2 out of 100 babies under a year are dying, which is among the highest in the world. The poverty rates are also in the same level as sub-Saharan Africa. This was one of the richest countries in the 70s, in Latin America, certainly. And now, what's happening in Congress? My name is Molly Reynolds. I am a fellow in the Governance Studies program at the Brookings Institution. With the November midterm elections roughly six months away, the expectations about what Congress will get done between now and then are already falling. No major progress on legislation is expected. 
So how will members spend their time in Washington over the next several months? In the Senate, the answer appears to be, least in large part, working on nominations. One driver of the Senate's continued focus on nominations, roughly 15 months into the Trump administration, is the relatively slow pace at which the administration has put forward nominees for agency positions. In a report for Brookings earlier this year, Anne Joseph O'Connell found that President Trump had put forth fewer agency nominees and had seen the smallest number of agency nominees confirmed in his first year than any president since George H.W. Bush. That leaves the Senate with plenty of work to do now, provided the Trump administration continues to put forward nominees. In his first year in office, President Trump fared better on the judicial side, in part because of the overall number of available positions to be filled. He inherited a relatively large number of vacancies when he took office. As of January 2017, there were 21 open appeals court positions that the president could fill, in part because the Republican-controlled Senate confirmed relatively few appellate judges during the last two years of the Obama administration. During his first year in office, the Senate confirmed 12 of Trump's appellate nominees, one more than the previous record for the first year of a new administration. In some cases, the availability of positions has been driven by President Trump's own appointees. On the cabinet side, President Trump had three cabinet-level officials depart in the first year of his administration. As my Brookings colleagues, Elaine Kmark and Nick Zeppos, have documented, this number of first-year departures is unusual and only adds to the pool of vacancies to be filled. We've also seen multiple cabinet-level nominations. Andrew Puzder at the Department of Labor and Ronnie Jackson at the VA withdraw, also increasing the number of spots that need to be addressed. Nominations then represent low-hanging fruit for the Republican Senate majority. Not only does there continue to be a steady stream of them to be taken up, but there are potential political benefits to doing so. Thanks to the change to the Senate's precedence for considering nominees made in 2013, Ending debate on confirmations only requires 51 votes rather than the 60 that are required for most legislation. As a result, Republicans can act on nominees without needing to attract Democratic support. Doing so provides them with a record to which they can point as they attempt to maintain their majority in the midterms, a record that includes relatively little legislation beyond the major tax bill passed last year. Given early indications that enthusiasm among Democrats may be outpacing enthusiasm among Republicans, a strong record, especially of judicial confirmations, may prove important as Republicans try to energize socially conservative voters in November. In addition, despite a map that is generally favorable to Republicans' chances of maintaining Senate control, any concern that they might lose their majority is likely to motivate Republicans further to try and process as many nominations as possible. Nomination politics also serve as an important illustration of an important dynamic of congressional influence over the executive branch. Some of the Senate's most significant influence generally comes behind closed doors, and when we see it on display publicly, it means something about the process is different than usual. Take, for example, the recently withdrawn Jackson nomination. It appears that Jackson underwent little to no vetting by the White House before his nomination was put forward, leaving it to the Senate to uncover a range of allegations that left the nomination in peril. In a more functional process, a nominee like Jackson is unlikely to have been put forward in the first place, not just because vetting would have uncovered the allegations of inappropriate behavior that were eventually revealed, but because the White House would recognize that an unqualified nominee might meet resistance in the Senate. In this situation, the Senate is exercising influence through the mere existence of the confirmation process, even if we never actually see an unqualified nominee put forward. 
With the need to find a new VA secretary and the consideration of Dino Haspel, the nominee to head the CIA, looming in the future, nomination politics aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Indeed, between now and November, they are likely to be much of what's happening in Congress. Now let's talk about some more numbers in terms of the numbers of people who have been displaced, who are refugees from Venezuela. We've often talked about in the Syria refugee crisis, the, the millions of Syrians displaced within their own country and then displaced as refugees to neighboring countries, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and then also to Europe. How does this, in terms of numbers, compare to the refugee crisis people are probably more familiar with? We don't know for certain the numbers because there's no incentive at all from the Venezuelan authorities to keep track of all this. And a lot of these people who are crossing any border are doing it without a passport. And the reason for it, by the way, is that there's no money in Venezuela even to print a passport. People ask for a passport and it's a very tedious process and it costs a lot of money. So many people don't even have a passport. The official numbers from the Colombian government, which is the largest recipient of this latest wave, is that are about 600,000 Venezuelans in the country. This number was published in December. I expect this number to be much higher. Unofficial sources on the ground tell you that this number is very, very low. The estimates are above a million people unofficially. The Wall Street Journal reported that there are in total something around 3 million people who have left the country in the past 20 years, with 1.5 who have left in the past two years. We don't really know numbers that much, but the Syrian refugee crisis resulted in 5 million Syrian refugees who left the country. So if we're thinking that there are maybe a million people, let's go with the Wall Street Journal numbers. They say 1.5 million people left in the past two years. The intensity of this crisis is increasing by the day. So I think those numbers could be higher. In a matter of two or three years, you could reach a number that is close to 4 million, perhaps 5 million. So it could really get to the same levels as the Syrian refugee crisis. We're not there yet, but I think it's a scenario that it's very feasible, unfortunately. It just sounds like the crisis is just unfolding right before our very eyes and that it's just going to keep perhaps getting worse. I mean, is the Venezuelan government itself trying to do anything policy-wise to resolve the situation? No. The short answer is no. And the reason is that they don't even acknowledge that there is a crisis. Actually, when you look at some government officials, they say that the flow is the other way around, that there are Colombians crossing into Venezuela. So their statements are completely out of touch with reality. There's no big prospects of any change in government in Venezuela, as I can see it. There's a quote-unquote election happening on May the 20th. The government has called for the presidential election a little bit earlier than it should be, just a few months earlier. But there are five reasons that people say that these elections are really not going to be credible. First, that the Electoral Council is not independent. It responds to the government. Second, that there is no international observation. They're not allowing international observation. Three, that most of the people who could beat the president, most of the political opponents to the president, are either in jail, in exile, or are inhabilitated to run. And this is Nicolas Maduro? The president is Nicolas Maduro, and he has put in jail most of the opponents that would for sure win him because his popularity is very low. Fourth, most of the political parties are illegal now by the regime. And fifth, that there are a lot of Venezuelans abroad who could vote, but they won't be able to vote because the consulates didn't even open the electoral registries. So there are reasons to think that these elections are fraudulent to begin with. And that's why the opposition is not even participating in the elections. And so what's the relationship structurally in Venezuela in its government between the president, the executive, and its legislative branch? 
the legislative branch is actually controlled by the opposition in its majority in an election that they won surprisingly in 2015. But ever since, the executive used the judiciary to basically nulled every single decision that came out of Congress. So the Congress is completely powerless today. On top of that, also last year, while all the protests were happening in the streets, we talked about that last year, the executive power also created this new constituent assembly to rewrite the Constitution. This is an assembly that is not parallel to the legislature. It's on top of it. It's an assembly that has the right to change the Constitution, that it's super powerful, The scary part of all this story, and I'm sure there are lessons for it, is that they found a way through, quote-unquote, democratic means to establish a dictatorship. There's another development somewhat recently in that the Venezuelan government created this new cryptocurrency based on oil. I think they call it the Petro. Can you explain what that is, what that means? Well, I can try. I don't think they even understand it. (laughs) But, um, you know, the government is in very bad shape because the country is so indebted they, they just simply don't have any access to financial sources anymore. They cannot borrow money from anybody. That actually, by the way, happened much before the sanctions. There were some sanctions put in place by the U.S. government that is stopping the government from issuing new debt. But the worst sanctions of all are the ones that the government of Venezuela brought up on themselves by their poor management. So they're finding new ways to finance themselves. The first way that they did is by printing money. That's why you see hyperinflation today in the country, which has destroy the purchasing power of all the citizens. I want to draw attention on this point to another photo you took that really struck me, and it's a couple of gentlemen who have made, out of their currency, their paper money, they've made wallets, they made a large satchel or a bag type thing, because their paper currency is just basically worth paper. And not only that, Fred, is that the hyperinflation is so strong and vile is that there's not enough cash in the country. So while the value of the money is almost worthless, but the value of the bill has some value because if you want to go to work and pay for the bus, you need a bill. You need cash. So sometimes when you do transactions in cash, those are more expensive today than if you would do it through a bank transfer or something like that. Just to give you a sense of how everything is completely messed up. Anyway, so once they start printing money, now they need more sources of financing. So they made up this story that they're going to do this cryptocurrency called the Petro, which is a fraudulent thing. And I think it's already obvious to the international community. So they're saying, well, we're going to issue something called a Petro, which is a digital currency, which is valued based on the price of each barrel of oil. So it's backed by a barrel of oil, which Venezuela has a lot, but underground. Venezuela has one of the largest oil reserves in the world. But you said production has been down. But production has been down dramatically. Five years ago or more, Venezuela was producing about 3 million barrels per day. Now it's producing 1.5, which are the same levels as in 1950. But why is it a fraud? First of all, because, you know, you are not going to lend money to anybody who owns a lot of money to other people. It doesn't matter if it's a bond, if it's a cryptocurrency or whatever it is. I mean, nobody's going to fall for it. And B, you're saying, well, you know, Don't worry, it's backed up because I have a barrel of oil that is worth $40 a barrel. But there are costs associated with taking that barrel out of the soil. So actually, it's not $40. It's worth much less. So even if you are paying $40 now to get a Petro, in order for you to get the $40 back, the price of oil will have to go up dramatically so that you can make up for that investment. And there's no reason to think that the price of oil will go up in the short term. And it's an international price. So... If anything, if it's up for the Venezuelan government, if you don't trust their management capabilities, that's a bad investment to begin with. 
but also it has to do with so many other things that you cannot control, such as the price of oil. So it's just a stunt from the government to try to get some money from outside. They claim that they got, I think they say, $700 million. There's no evidence of that. There's no trace of such transaction. So we don't really know much about it. Let's shift a little bit to what the international community, international organizations are or should be doing. And here I'm thinking about um, the regional governments, the regional organizations like OAS, maybe the World Bank, maybe the IMF, the United States specifically. Talk about some of the actions that are happening in terms of solutions. For the refugees or? Both for the refugees, maybe we'll start with that and then we can move on to the macroeconomic, the financial issue in Venezuela. Well, for the refugees, it's very complicated because we have to be honest that Colombia and Brazil and other countries in the regions, they were never countries that received so many migrants. If anything, Venezuela was the country that used to receive a lot of migrants in very good ways. But these countries were typically countries where migration originated from. So they're having a tough time. They're having a tough time with dealing with this huge inflow. So they really need the international community. There's a chicken of an egg problem a little bit here because on one hand, the Colombian government, I know, and probably other governments are hoping the international community can help them. But at the same time, they're not willing to call these people refugees. So the international community can be mobilized, but to make the case that you need a substantial amount of money, you have to make the case that this is a crisis. So you have a chicken and egg issue here. But regardless, there is a place here for the international community. If these people are refugees, it is part of the international agreements that the world have. It's understandable that the responsibility is shared among countries. And the costs are quite high. We made some calculations that are posted in the Brookings website on how much would it cost to settle these refugees in Colombia and the rest of the region. And we assume, let's say, 500,000 people flee the country in the next year or two with a refugee status or with the need of humanitarian aid. We compared how much did it cost in countries such as Germany, Turkey, Jordan to settle Syrian refugees, adjusted the price for the local economy prices, and we found that we're talking about $3,000 per person per year. And this sounds very cheap, right, to give roof, to get housing and food and all that for a year. But if you multiply this by half a million, you're talking about $1.5 billion. That's a lot of money. And I think the international community is starting to realize that these countries need help. The U.S. initially came up with a package of $2.5 million from USAID. President Pence last week in the Summit of Americas announced an extra $16 million, which is a good start, but it's... It's not enough. $16 million to $1.5 billion. So a long way to go. Right. And, you know, some numbers that we have show that Jordan, for instance, settling 600,000 refugees from Syria, they spend about $1.7 billion. So the numbers are comparable. But, yeah, you need much more from the international community. And I think that you need both sides to be frank and to understand that this is a big crisis, that these people are refugees and need assistance, and to think of a good way moving forward and how not only to receive them and help them, but how to integrate them, of course, into the local communities. It strikes me, again, thinking about Syria, and I've talked about this on the podcast with other Brookings experts, the connection between refugees, the destabilization that the refugees cause in the region, and the connection that can have on a whole other set of strategic and security issues as well. That it seems like the international community would look at what's happening in Venezuela and say, we've learned our lesson, we're going to approach the situation differently and try to really resolve the problem for the humanitarian reasons, but also for the kind of security reasons, the the regional issues. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I actually plan to, in the next few months or year, even to work more on the research side on, on understanding how to integrate these migrants and refugees into the labor force because a lot of the work I've done so far shows how, of all things, actually migrants and refugees could be a key for economic development, and we can, of course, expand on that. I agree that there are a lot of lessons to learn from the Syrian crisis, and I think one lesson is to set up refugee camps is something most people don't want because it makes it harder for people to integrate. There's a big difference, I think, that it's important to mention. I don't know if it's because of culture or because we're talking about the same continent, but I think that you see very good reception from people, mostly very good reception from people in the continent towards their Venezuelan brothers and sisters. People are welcoming of the Venezuelans. They understand their tragedy. And I think that there are no big worries in terms of security as there are in Europe. So I think that's an advantage of this situation. And now what is needed is maybe what these countries don't have, such as infrastructure, such as be able to provide the right tools for these people to integrate and so on. So there are some lessons to draw from Syria, but there are also some good things here that give us a good starting point. Well, let's stick with the good then, and let's try to end this conversation on a positive note. What did you see during your trip to Venezuela and Colombia that gives you hope for the future? Fred, I saw, as I told you before, very sad things. I saw people looking for food, people don't know where they're going to sleep, people trying to do whatever is possible to find medicines for their family or for their children. And at the same time, I saw a lot of hope in attitude. And I saw a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, who are doing their best to keep up with their micro-businesses. I saw people who were selling fruits. I saw people who had their own little business of phone accessories and they told me, you know, every day I take a little bit of my earnings, I put them back in the business and my business is growing. I saw people who were, as you said, like creating art like wallets and selling them in the streets. I saw people who already had three restaurants in Cucuta giving jobs to natives and to refugees. So I saw a lot of hope in that because I think that these people, I mean, if there's something good that is going to come out of all this tragedy is that it's actually these migrants and these refugees who will play a huge role in reconstructing Venezuela. Because as I've shown in my academic research, migrants are the most important or the most effective way of transferring technologies and knowledge across countries. And these people will spend some years abroad in their jobs, in new industries, and they will take a lot of that learning back to Venezuela, which will hopefully will help Venezuela become a diversified economy, having a strong business sector and having a prosperous quality of life for everybody. So I think that they are actually the key to the future. Well, I want to thank you, Danny, for sharing your time and expertise today, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Danny Bahar and his research on our website, brookings.edu, and follow him on Twitter at Danny underscore Bahar. That's D-A-N-Y underscore B-A-H-A-R. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and Our Events podcasts. 
Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. Thank you.